following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me to uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 20, and uh, we're going to start in uh, verse 1. Amen. All right. Revelation. So today is a standalone sermon, and that just means that it's not a part of a series. So as I was praying through what the Lord would want us to study today, I felt a strong compelling to deal with the question, are we in the end times? And part of that has to do with, I think many people, this is a question in their minds. Um, In the current upheaval surrounding COVID-19, in addition to like, you know, there's record-breaking locust swarms in Africa uh, at the moment, if you haven't seen that. And, And just in general, we've got just geopolitical unrest that we are experiencing uh, as humanity. And so what we're going to do is we're going to dip our toes (laughs) into an area of theology tonight known as eschatology. And that basically means the study of end things. Uh, Perhaps more than any other area of theology, eschatology has a wide range of approaches and views, and that starts even with how people feel about its importance. Some avoid it completely uh, because it it can be really rife with controversy. Some overemphasize it as if all faithfulness to Jesus and, and the way we fulfill his mission hangs on adhering to a certain interpretation. Uh, those are kind of two extremes, and we want to we want to strike that that middle ground. Uh, our goal tonight is going to be to give a very basic look at four of the most dominant views when it comes to this subject. And though I have opinions, of course, uh, my goal is not to argue for any of these, but just to present them accurately. Now, these views they have. They have large and distinct variations, okay, um, in the way that they see the subject of the end times. But our, our goal is to, it's going to be more about seeing what basic principles they all agree on and what that means for how we live our lives as followers of Jesus. Uh, I've also brought a napkin here and I've got a pen and so I'm going to draw you some really sweet charts uh, just kind of letting you know exactly what you should expect over the next 100 years uh, and when you can expect Jesus to return. So be ready for that. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. And if anybody does that, don't look at their napkin, okay? Because <laughs> that is really foolish. All right. Um, what we need to remember, though, this is important. The truth about all of this is that it's an in-house discussion. And what do I mean by that? I mean that Christians should not divide or separate over differences in the way they understand what the scriptures say about eschatology. There have been many brilliant and faithful theologians throughout church history who have differed on this subject. And many of those differences, when you look back at it, that they were influenced heavily by the point in history that they found themselves and what was happening in the world at that time. 
And, and you could see how that would have some influence in, in the way you would interpret these things. So um, the four major views that we're going to discuss are dispensational premillennialism. Try to say that three times fast because I just struggled to say it one time slow. Uh, historical premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Okay? Now keep in mind, this is this is for sure true. There are more, okay, than these four. And there's a lot of variations under each umbrella. This is going to be a very general overview, just to give you some bearings, okay, in this discussion. And remember, this discussion has been ongoing throughout the entirety of church history, okay? Uh, I just want to mention this as well. Sometimes you will see this discussed with like three major divisions uh, so that they don't separate dispensational and historical premillennialism. But I, just for our intents and purposes, I think those two are different enough. I think it's worth mentioning, even though we're just doing a surface level examination of these differing views. Um, the, The divergence in all of these has mostly to do with how Revelation chapter 20 verses one through six and the millennium that it mentions are understood. So let's read that together, and then we'll get into this, okay? Uh, So like I said, Revelation 20, uh, that's at the back of the Bible, if you're still learning how to find uh, chapters and verses. Revelation 20, starting in verse 1, here we go. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. Until the thousand years were completed, after these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image." And had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Praise God for his word even when it's tough to understand, especially when it's tough to understand. Amen. So as we unpack this, one key to look for when thinking through these things is to pay attention to how scripture in general and and prophetic scripture in particular are interpreted. That's going to determine to some degree where people land in, in, in their camps and their eschatology kind of tribes. Okay. So What it often comes down to is is what we mean when we ask this question. Do you believe the scriptures should be interpreted literally? Now for us here at Love City, our answer is that we view the scriptures literally where they are meant to be read that way. Okay, so what do I mean when I say that? Well, we need to give credence to the fact that there is metaphor and symbolism. There's poetry in the scriptures. So I'll just give you a concrete example. If you go to John 10, Jesus says he is the door. Okay, We don't read the scriptures in a literal sense to the degree that that would cause us to say, okay, Jesus is the door. So what kind of wood is he made of? Is he an oak door? Is he 
made of ash or, you know, acacia wood, mahogany, something real fancy, that's, that would be silly. That's, that's taking literalism and literal interpretation too far, okay? And so there's parts of the scriptures that were written and intended to be metaphorical, allegorical, symbolic, right? So we need to pay attention and, and do our best to figure that out. Uh, some of the scripture is poetic, it's metaphorical, it's symbolic in nature, and, and it's meant to be read and understood as such. And this seems especially true with some of the prophetic imagery found in Revelation. Uh, now, some of the debate comes in when trying to figure out what is literal and what is symbolic. That's where we need to have humility and really ask for the Holy Spirit's help, because uh, it's not always super clear. There are those that think it's super clear and think they have it all figured out. Uh, and those are folks I would encourage you to not listen to very much. Okay, So uh, first I told you we'd look at dispensational premillennialism. What is that? Well, this might help, uh, but some who hold to this understanding, they might be annoyed by the association, but this is basically the view that was laid out in the kind of infamous Left Behind series from the mid-90s and early 2000s. So if you learned most of your eschatology from Kirk Cameron and then later Nicolas Cage in the 2004 film, uh, that's probably, you know, and, and I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not saying anything about that in terms of the validity of, of dispensational premillennialism. Uh, Kirk Cameron, if you see this on the internet, bro, much love to you, Okay. In that view, here's, here's the general timeline, okay? It's that the first big end times event is a rapture where those who belong to Jesus are, are caught up and they meet him in the air, as well as the dead who were believers, they're raised as well, okay? So first thing that happens is a rapture. They, that means believers are removed from the earth before a seven-year tribulation period. Most of the time that is pulled and understood from Daniel 9, uh, and in that seven-year tribulation, there's a, an antichrist figure that comes to power. At the end of the tribulation, Christ returns, binds Satan, and reigns on earth then for a thousand years. So that's where, so it's pre-millennial, okay? Uh, they, they see the return of, the, of Christ as before that millennial reign, all right? So the, the millennium then in, in this ideology is seen as an actual physical reign of Christ. Okay, so at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released and mounts one last war against God. It's a feudal war, as all wars against the God who spoke all things into existence are. Uh, when you come up against him, you lose. That's just how it goes. Uh, so Satan is released, rebels one last time. There's talk of Gog and Magog and, and the joining together of an army to come against God. They get defeated, cast into the lake of fire. And then after all of that, God and all those who belong to him, they proceed to their eternal habitation of a new earth as described in Revelation 21. Uh, one interesting and distinct feature of dispensational millennialism is that most who hold to this view see a separate redemption plan for Israel and the church. Okay, All the other views that we're going to discuss they see God's promises to Abraham and to the nation of Israel uh, throughout the Old Testament. They see those promises being fulfilled through the New Testament church. Okay, so uh, the, the dispensational millennium crowd kind of stands alone in that. Uh, the rest, and, and, and that's the thing. Sometimes when people are talking about this stuff and they like arguing about it, they'll, they'll kind of reach to 
a viewpoint supporters and try to, you know, attack their character and thus attack the ideas. Or, you know, sometimes there's other things that come with certain thought processes. And we're not getting into all that today. Uh, I'm just trying to give you a real brief overview of some of the main ways that people understand this. Uh, Mostly to show you that the most important things about it are agreed upon. And then for us to live out of that and focus on the things I think Jesus wants us to focus on. So that was uh, dispensational premillennialism. There's a lot for me to keep track of here, okay? The next I'm going to tell you is historical premillennialism. Again, sometimes people will group those together, but there's enough difference we need to probably just mention it, okay? So in this view, the rapture is seen as coming after the rise of a beast and false prophet. So big difference there in the dispensational view. Rapture first. For historical premillennialism, the rapture is after that period where there's a beast and false prophet that rise up. And after this time of trouble, then um, they see then the, the second coming of Christ along with resurrection and rapture of the saints. Uh, the second coming will begin then the millennial reign of Christ. And m- most who hold this view um, are not dogmatic or insistent that the millennium is a literal thousand years or, or some other amount of time. They're not sure. It's, it's an era. It's a representative, that thousand years of a certain amount of time, um, but not something we can necessarily peg. Okay, so that's historical premillennialism. The next is postmillennialism. Okay, and so like I said, all of these kind of hinge on how they understand the, that millennial uh, language in Revelation 20, but also like how the return of Christ relates to that millennium. Okay, so uh, most holding to a post-millennial understanding, uh, they see a lot of the prophecy in the Gospels, a lot of the prophecy that's in the Gospels and Revelation as having already been fulfilled. Uh, much of which surrounds the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Uh, This view sees the millennium not as a thousand-year literal reign, but as a golden age of gospel fruitfulness leading up to the second coming of Christ. So the basic idea is that there will come a time where there is a great revival in the world, and the vast majority of living people will turn from sin to trust in Jesus. Uh, and, and after this time of kind of a great, another great awakening, uh, after that, then will come uh, the return of Jesus. Okay, so that's post-millennialism. The last I'm going to give you is ah-millennialism. All right, so uh, sometimes people mistake ah-millennial to mean like no millennium, but that's not really true. The ah-millennial understanding is, is not that there is a, a future literal reign of Christ, in kind of this millennium language sense, but that what that's referring to is the era between his resurrection and the second coming. Okay. Where we are right now. So we would be in that millennial, basically at the resurrection, Jesus whooped the devil. (laughs) And so we're in that now. Uh, Under this ideology, prophetic interpretation is heavily symbolic and allegorical in its approach. So what this means practically is that under this viewpoint, we are in the millennium now, and when Christ returns, it will be for judgment and the beginning of our eternal 
fellowship with him. There's not a thousand-year millennial reign coming. That thousand-year millennial reign spoke of in Revelation is describing the time we're in now, from resurrection to second coming. So in that uh, theologians that, that ascribe to this, you'll hear them use the language of already, not yet. That language will be commonly employed to describe how to see the kingdom of God. That Jesus already defeated Satan, sin, and death through his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection, but the final fulfillment and consummation will not be until he comes again. So that means those who hold this view, they're not looking for a coming rapture or a coming tribulation, but only to Christ's return. Okay? That was dispensational premillennialism. Uh, that was historical premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. We're done with isms. That was fun, wasn't it? Man, that was good. Okay, so what do we do with this? Was there a point? Is there a point? Yes, there's a point. Uh, here's one thing I want to say is it, it is worthwhile to dig deeper into these different views to familiar, familiarize yourself with them. Look to the scriptural support for each and the interpretation philosophy behind them. That's worthwhile. Um, but it is also wise to remember that these things are not as crystal clear as those who argue dogmatically for their preferred understanding tend to think. Okay? There has to be a lot of charity and grace and humility around these things and discussions of them for sure. Here's a question. Is it possible that we are given in Revelation and other prophetic scripture that what we're given there was not so much about trying to draw a detailed map for us of, of future events, but to focus all of our hope for the future in Christ alone. Could that have been the point of all of it? I, I think so, and I'm going to make a case for that. There is one future event that every single one of the views we discuss are looking forward to. Because the scriptures are crystal clear on that subject. And what that is, is the fact that Jesus is coming back. It doesn't matter which one of those isms you ascribe to. We're all looking forward to Jesus and his triumphant, glorious return. Let me read you Titus. Uh, this is chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to the deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Friends, Jesus will return not as a humble Galilean preacher disregarded and scoffed at by many, but as the triumphant risen Lord of glory to which every knee will bow, either in great joy and celebration because they trusted him or great sorrow and regret because they rejected him. That is the bottom line. But this bottom line informs our approach to the discussion of whether we are in the end times or not. The truth is that early church fathers, 
wrote as if they believed the return of Christ was imminent in the second, third, the fourth centuries, and all the way up through. The focus of followers of Jesus is not trying to nail down a date, but living in the duality all of our lives of knowing that Jesus could return before this sermon is over or not for another thousand years. That's a difficult duality to, what do I mean when I say living in that duality? I mean, we need to acknowledge Jesus could return before this sermon is over. Hallelujah. But he may also hold off another thousand years, giving us more time to tell more people that there's hope in Christ alone. Hallelujah. How do we live with both of those realities? I know that's not easy. It'd be much easier to pick which one we think is most likely. I think Jesus is coming back really fast, or I think Jesus is coming back not a long time from now. That's not what we're called to. We're called to figure out how to live with both of those realities at any given time. Let me read this to you. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-9. through nine. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Amen. What mockers may see as the slowness of God is really the patience of God. And we see his heart for this time in between Jesus rising from the dead and returning to glory. He desires as many as possible to come to repentance. Now, in case what I've said thus far isn't convincing you, Jesus made this pretty plain himself in the first chapter of Acts. I'm talking about us shifting our focus off of trying to figure out where we are in the timeline and understanding instead what's most important is that we focus on the mission God gave us in the meantime. Why am I saying that? Am I, am I trending too far to that ditch of just ignoring eschatology? Is that what I'm doing? Well, Here, let me read you something from the mouth of Jesus himself and you be the judge. Judge this, do it. Acts chapter 1, 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they were asking him saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs, which the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Well, that looks pretty clear to me. What were they asking about? Is it time yet? Is it the time, Jesus? What did Jesus say? That's above your pay grade, boys. Here's what I want you to focus on. I'm about to give you the power of the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses. Hello. The bride of Christ was never meant to sit around and wring her hands about the signs and the times. 
We are meant to be witnesses by the power of the Holy Spirit preaching the goodness and salvation and love of Jesus and his perfect gospel. That is supposed to be our focus. Amen. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping you're moving towards being convinced of this emphasis and I hope that that is leading you to this question. So how do we do that right now? Right now we are gathered virtually. There are limitations in this moment. There are struggles and there are challenges in this moment to being witnesses. So how do we, how do we do it right now? I'm hoping a fire is being stirred in your belly. And I hope like the prophet of old, you got fire in your bones and, and you're hearing what's being said here. And, and, and you're excited about being a witness for Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit. I hope something's jumping up inside of you. So how do we do that right now? Well, here's the first thing I'm going to give you. We walk in faith and not in fear. We walk in faith and not in fear. Friends, much of this Christian life comes down to whether we are willing to walk by faith and not by sight. I know when we look around right now, I know when we watch the news, I know when we watch the news feed, I know a lot of things we could set our eyes on right now have the potential to stir anxiety and fear in us. But friends, we need this whole discussion we've just had should help us in boosting again our confidence in God's cosmic sovereignty, the fact that he knows, right? What did Jesus say to his disciples? It's, that's not for you to know the times and epochs that God has set by his own authority, but we know he has set those times. We know that God has spoke all things into existence. We know that God set Adam and Eve in the garden. We know that God came In Genesis 3, when they decided to rebel against him and told them what the consequences were, told Satan what his consequences were, but also gave that seed of hope, knowing that, saying that plainly, in that first foreshadowing of the gospel, that a seed of that woman was going to come and crush the head of that serpent. Did God just talk big in Genesis 3 and happen to get lucky when thousands of years later, that... That plan unfolded perfectly, exactly the way the prophets had said. No, God is working all things according to his sovereign will, including everything we're going through right now. And friends, I don't know about you. I I hope this is true. I hope there's a witness in your heart to this fact. I have had more deep, miracle, heart-level conversations with people in the last three weeks while we've been going through this than the whole year before that combined. And I have lots of conversations with people, serious conversations, heart-level conversations, but I'm talking about things being broke off people, people being released of stuff, people dealing with things inside of them that haven't been touched in a long time. We're being shook, and it's not something we as God's people need to be afraid of. We need to walk in faith of God's goodness and power and sovereignty, not in fear. What else can we do? And how how does that help us be a witness? Well, friends, (laughs) that is going to affect the way we interact with people. It's going to affect what we talk about when we have the opportunity to interact with people, whether it's digitally or whether it's from six feet away or whatever it is. It's going to affect our generosity if we're walking in faith and not fear. I mean, there's several accounts throughout the scriptures of people giving out of their lack. I know that this whole situation means that Many of us are working with less resources, but there's something beautiful that speaks to the faith that God has given us as a gift when we're still generous even out of our lack. And that's not some ploy to try to get you to give more offerings. 
you guys have been faithful thus far, and, and I'm, I, I'm trusting God that he's going to take care of our needs as a ministry. I'm talking about primarily being generous with your neighbors, being generous with your family, being generous with those who don't know Jesus, because you're not afraid that God's not going to take care of you if you share what you have. I hope that didn't come off as flippant or it doesn't matter that thus far the, the family at Love City through this has continued to give faithfully to support gospel ministry. That matters a lot and I'm real grateful for it. But I also know that if every person that's a part of Love City lost their job and lost their business and none of us had two red nickels to rub together, that God's still going to provide for us and he's still going to make sure the gospel goes forward. I'm just saying. Praise God that we, as the church, are part of the means that he uses to fund the gospel going forward. I'm thankful that I get to be a part of that. I I hope you are too. Based on what you guys have done thus far in giving through this difficult time, I I think you are, for which I'm really grateful. Thank you. Seriously. The second thing I'm going to give you is that we walk in faith and not fear. That was the first thing I gave you. The second is I'm going to give give you is that we walk in love and not fear. How is that different? Well, in 1 John it says perfect love casts out fear. And it might be hard for us to understand how those two connect to each other. But friends, there there was trepidation in the heart of our master as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane over the upcoming torture and all that he was going to go through to pay the price for our sins. And you have to ask what, what pushed him past that fear and trepidation. There's, there's one answer. It was love. It's been often said to the point where it's maybe become unfortunately cliche, but nails couldn't have held Jesus to the cross. You understand that. It was love that held him there. And I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful we have a God who didn't just tell us to love, but then not give us a way to know what that means. He gave us Jesus. He didn't just tell us what love is. He showed us by Christ dying on the cross in our place, letting his precious blood flow that we can know life and hope and grace. Walking in love and not in fear. It's it's going to be closely tied to walking in faith and not fear, but it's going to mean that you're not going to let fear and anxiety cause you to turn inward, to be self-focused, to be just worried about what's going on in, in, in your own little house, in your own little world in your own mind. It's not going to, you're not going to, because of fear, stop looking with eyes to love and, he- and hearing with ears to love and, and, and letting your feet and your hands move towards acts of love. In this time when it would be very tempting to be primarily concerned with making sure you're taking care of just you or the ones right around you to to sacrifice, to walk in love towards others. And I'm not even talking about meeting material needs only. It's, I understand that there's this phenomenon we have. We, we are overwhelmed with so much information. It's, it's, it's clinically understood that we're getting deadened to tragedy. We're getting numbed to the reality of how much brokenness there is in the world because now we have a 24-hour news cycle and we have the ability to cover tsunamis across the world that 200 years ago we wouldn't have even known about. But now we know about it within 15 minutes. And so we're getting inundated to the point where we're getting numb to the the needs of others, the pain of others. And it would be even more possible for that to happen as we walk through this as a people, to just get numb to it all. Friends, I'm asking you to ask the Lord to help you to not let that happen. 
be committed to being an agent of love in this world, being an ambassador of the good gospel of love, of Jesus' message. So that's going to mean looking to give emotionally, to invest in people, to ask the questions that might lead to long and possibly difficult conversations and just trust that even if you feel like you don't have anything to give in those situations, the Lord will give you the power. Jesus didn't say, don't worry about times and epochs. You're going to be my witnesses. He said, don't worry about times and epochs. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit to empower you to be my witnesses. Dear friends, that makes all the difference. He can give you all the power you need to walk in love and to pay the price that's going to cost you. Amen. We walk in joy and not fear. It's the last thing I'm going to give you. Philippians 3 is great for this. The whole book of Philippians is great for this, but there's, there's something to joy. And, and Paul ties it closely as he threads the needle of the joy of the Christian life. He ties it closely to contentment. You guys know the famous, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's a very good sports verse, uh, so people think. But really, when Paul unpacks what he's talking about there, he's talking about the fact that he has learned to be content with little and content with much. He can do both. He can have joy in either situation. And friends, that is crucial. It's crucial for us to be able to do that, to walk in the joy that comes in contentment, to be thankful, to stay grateful in this time. There's so much, yes, we could be worried and anxious about, but there is so much to be grateful for. And some of which one of those overwhelms our thoughts and and the contemplations of our heart has to do with us making a choice. Yes, I know sometimes our minds just run and kind of do their own thing, but God has given us the ability to discipline and train our minds, to take, captured, uh, to take captive thoughts that don't align with the truth of his word and to cast those down and to let our minds and our hearts be lined up with the truth of his word. And, and, and the truth of his word is, we have reason to be full of joy. We're God's children. <laughs> We've been chosen to be a part of the great rescue mission of telling people they don't have to die and be separated from God forever. They don't have to live in this life with no hope with no real reason for understanding what their purpose is. We have the only reason for true, unmovable joy. It's Jesus. And the question number one is, are we going to cling to that and walk in that? And then number two is, are we going to share it? Because fear will choke that real quick. Anxiety will come and try to Push away all those reasons we know we have for joy. All those reasons we know we have for gratitude. It'll try to crush the ability God has given us to be content with little and with much. Because we're not, we're not as tied to this material plane as, as maybe somebody who doesn't know there's hope to come. Praise God. Amen. How can we walk in faith and not in fear? How can we walk in love and not in fear? How do we walk in joy and not in fear when there is so much to potentially be afraid about? Well, friends, there is no fear for those who have come to faith in Christ. There is no fear of death. There is no fear of purposelessness. There is no fear ultimately because of the truth of the gospel. We can walk in all those other things and fear can be put to death. 
How is that possible? Why does the gospel do that for us? Well, here's the beauty of the gospel. Yes, we can, we can with full acknowledgement say, if it, wasn't, if it wasn't for Jesus, yeah, I, I would be full of fear. Yes, I would be selfish. I wouldn't have any joy. I, I, would be, I wouldn't be content. I would only be about myself. Because without Jesus, that's where we all are. The Bible's clear about that, that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. I wouldn't be full of faith. The wages of sin is death. We know that. The Bible's clear about that. But how can we be afraid when the scriptures follow up this incredibly, this crushing reality that the wages of sin is death, but it follows it up with, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Praise God because of the truth of the gospel, because Jesus came and lived the life we couldn't, died the death we should have, and then rose from the grave because the gospel is true today. We literally can live completely fearless. It's an actual possibility. Does that mean we're never tempted to fear? Absolutely not. Does that mean sometimes we won't get pulled into that because we're not perfected yet, because we're not done with the process of sanctification? Absolutely not. It doesn't mean that, but it does mean that whenever we are tempted or whenever we stumble into it, we are not without help. We are not without recourse. We are not without the option and the possibility to turn again our thoughts and our eyes and our hopes and our faith towards God to ask for his help, have the fear and anxiety be vanquished and trust again in the fact that if God is good enough to pull off something as majestic and beautiful and perfect and astounding as his gospel, as redemption for all mankind through Christ, who would trust him by faith, if God can do that, and he says he's for me, and he says he's with me, what then should I fear? Nothing. And that, dear friends, is what Jesus told his disciples in Acts. He was going to empower them through the Holy Spirit to be witnesses to. That is our call. That is our focus. In light of that, friends, may we live fruitfully in the duality of knowing that Jesus may return now or generations from now. And may we continue to learn how to live accordingly for his glory and for our good. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the book of Revelation. We thank you for the prophecy contained within your word. God, please forgive us as your people for uh, sometimes squabbling in pride over things that you never intended for us to be squabbling about. Lord, you've called us to unity. Lord Jesus, we have recorded in John 17, your high priestly prayer. It's the longest prayer we got. It's, It's the prayer closest to your crucifixion that we have. So we know what what was on your mind in the last hours of your life on this earth was praying for our unity as your people. So God, help us to hold that in the same high esteem you do. God, help us to pray for that. Lord, I, I, I pray for anybody who has struggled with division as a result of their understanding of end things. God, please just deal with us, help us, set us free from whatever superiority complexes would cause us to do that. And Lord, help us to see what we all agree on. We agree, Lord Jesus, that you're coming back. And our hope, it sits upon that beautiful fact. No matter what's going on in the world, 
God, we know this is not the end. You're not done. You've promised to return. And I thank you that when you return, it's not going to be like the first time you came. That was good and that was what needed to happen then. But Lord, when you return, you're coming in glory. You're coming as, as, the, as the champion, as the one who's already done all the fighting and all the work. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess Jesus Christ is Lord. God, help us not to wait for that glorious day of your return to bow our knee and to declare that truth. But God, may we do it every single day, not just in a, with our lips, but in our deeds. Help us to be the witnesses you've called us and empowered us to be. May our knee be bowed to you now in every part of our life and in, and in a, a humble recognition <laughs> that the greatest use we can have for our lives, the greatest purpose that we could possibly strive towards is to be a part of the mission that you gave us of letting people know there is hope and joy and contentment, peace to be found in you, Lord Jesus, and you alone. Thank you. Thank you for these things. Thank you that we can walk in faith and love and joy. Thank you that you've put fear to death. Thank you that so often in your word, you told us to fear not because you are God and because you're with us. Lord, please help us believe that and act accordingly. For your glory, O oh Lord, we love you. Thank you that you loved us first and you showed us what love is. We trust you, Master. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.